Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Visual Politic Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Whistler. In this one, we are, this is a repurposing of a video that originally went out on our Visual Politic YouTube channel on the 28th of February 2019. It's called Is Gaddafi's End a Cautionary Tale? Uh, I'm going to be jumping in whenever anything doesn't make sense, if there are any charts or quotes, just to kind of do attributions and stuff. But other than that, I really hope you enjoy this one and let's roll into it. Nobody likes dictators, but what happens when the alternative is even worse? Well, this is the story of Libya. This is the story of former Prime Minister Gaddafi's rise and his fall. Libya has more oil reserves than America. In fact, they have the biggest oil reserves in Africa. Then again, production-wise, they are far below most of the famous oil countries, even below Iran, despite Trump's sanctions. Why? Well, maybe you've heard of the Arab Spring. After that period of uprisings and general destabilization, Libya is the country that ended up the worst off. Basically, there's a lesson to be learned from Libya, and that's that no matter how bad you think a country might be doing, it can always be doing worse. Maybe you've seen the movie The Dictator by Sacha Baron Cohen. Well, this parody was pretty much inspired by Gaddafi. Indeed, he is one of the craziest dictators of all time, and he ruled Libya for decades. Gaddafi was well known for having his own harem of about 30 women. This harem was known as the Amazonian Guard. From the early 1970s onwards, they remained close at his side at all times. Sometimes the women even took bullets for Gaddafi. One woman died and two were injured when the Libyan leader was attacked in 1998. Some of the conditions to become part of the guard were to make an oath of virginity, dress in camouflage, and maintain perfect nail polish and makeup. Of course, there are thousands of reports of rape and abuse that came to light after Gaddafi's death. Surprisingly, during his lifetime, Gaddafi always congratulated himself as a protector of women's rights in the Arab world. But not only that, the self-proclaimed brother leader had a massive fear of heights and could not fly more than eight hours over water. He also had some peculiar demands when he stayed in hotels. He always had to stay on the first floor and he would not climb more than 35 steps. So yes, if we make a video ranking the most extravagant dictators of all time, Gaddafi would certainly be in our top 10. Diplomacy-wise, Gaddafi is one of those dictators that went from being America's worst enemy to a friend of the US before becoming, yet again, the man America love to hate. And today, Libya is a chaotic state where even foreign oil companies have to make deals with warlords in order to keep pumping oil. Don't believe me? Well, just have a look at this news. This comes from El Confidencial. Repsol oil fields in Libya go back to business after deal with the raiders. In this case, a Spanish oil company, Repsol, had an agreement with the Libyan National Oil Corporation in 2008. Back then, they just had to agree with the dictatorship in order to do business. Then, during the Libyan civil war, a different warlord took over Repsol facilities. And finally, after a lot of struggle in 2018, the oil company had to make an agreement with a local tribe. So, what happens here? What's going on in Libya today? And why would an oil company make a deal with a warlord? Well, today we're going to answer all of these questions, but before we do, let's take a look back at the history. 
the man you love to hate. Have you ever seen the movie Naked Gun? It starts with a scene where Gaddafi appears next to the other bad guys of the moment. Idi Amin, Ayatollah Khomeini, Gorbachev, Yasser Arafat, Fidel Castro. Well, they're all gathered in this room and they're making a plan to defeat the United States. Yes, dear viewer, that was a time when Gaddafi was considered to be one of the worst evils on the planet. Why? Well, let's take a look back in time. Libya was an Italian colony for several decades in the early 1900s. Then it became a monarchy until, in 1969, Gaddafi rose to power. believed in so-called Arab socialism, a strange cocktail of centralized economy, secularism, and cult of personality. He even developed his own political philosophy, writing an extremely influential book, The Green Book. He made countless appearances at Arab and international gatherings, standing out not just with his outlandish clothing, but also because of his blunt speeches and odd behavior. Even some socialist parties in Europe were sponsored by him. The reality was that oil could pay for a lot of influence in the rest of the world. But unlike other countries like Egypt, he didn't nationalize oil. He put harder conditions on foreign oil companies, but that was all. He challenged oil executives by stating, people who have lived without oil for 5,000 years can live without it again for a few years in order to attain their legitimate rights. That was a bold move, a move that helped him secure a majority share of oil company revenues while at the same time maintaining an effective oil industry in the country. Despite the socialism and the dictatorship, Libya was still open for business. This comes from Reuters. Repsol says Libyan oil nationalization unlikely. And let's be honest here, the formula worked. Many European companies like ENI, Total, and Repsol kept doing business with Libya. Money came on, money went in, oil came out. And the country's citizens, they benefited. For years, Libya had the highest human development index of any African country. At certain points, it even surpassed South Africa. This all was accompanied by a very controversial foreign policy. During the 1980s and 1990s, Gaddafi aligned himself with the Eastern Bloc, Fidel Castro's Cuba, and openly supported movements like the Irish Republican Army and the Palestinian Liberation Front. But none of this would have been a big deal if it wasn't for the terrorism. Libya's government was known to participate or aid in terrorist attacks. Many Marxist-inspired guerrilla groups or even terrorist groups were funded by Gaddafi. But the defining moment was the bombing of a nightclub in Berlin where American soldiers used to frequent. Many Libyan spies were involved in this and America it didn't wait to answer. 7 o'clock this evening, Eastern Time, air and naval forces of the United States launched a series of strikes against the headquarters, terrorist facilities and military assets that support Muammar Gaddafi's subversive activities. The harsh reaction was supposed to kill the mad dog of the Middle East as Reagan branded Gaddafi, but the colonel came out of the attack unscathed. America put Libya on the terrorist-friendly countries list, and American companies were restricted from exploiting all that. Nonetheless, those European countries like Total, Repsol, and ENI, they kept on doing their thing. Yeah, Libya. In Libya, Repsol works in one of the biggest oil beds discovered lately, with over a billion crude barrels. This is the power of oil. That was a Repsol ad from 1996. But let's press on forward with our story. In 2001, 9-11 happened, since this was a turning point for Gaddafi's foreign policy. 
Terrorist loving as he was, Gaddafi was inspired by socialism, not by radical Islam. Therefore, Osama bin Laden was a common enemy both of America and many socialist leaders. This is how Gaddafi started collaborating with America. He signed a nuclear disarmament agreement in which the leader agreed to eliminate his country's nuclear weapons. The US declared victory and everything else was good again. In 2006, they even took Libya off the list of terrorist countries. Gaddafi, he was a son of a bitch, but you know, at least he was now bar son of a bitch. Nonetheless, again, things changed in 2011. The Arab Spring. The Arab Spring began in December of 2010, where Mohamed Bouazizi, a Tunisian street vendor, set himself on fire in protest against the police. He could never have imagined how his sacrifice would spark a revolution. All of a sudden, the Tunisian people started protesting against their government, which was another Arab socialist dictatorship. And this, it inspired protesters in neighboring countries. Suddenly, most of the northern African countries, they were overthrowing their dictators. Libya was not an exception, and in 2011, a civil war broke out. When the first winds of rebellion started blowing towards Libya, Gaddafi even tried to protest with the people, trying to keep up with his brother leader of the revolution image that he was so desperate to cling on to. But turns out people could see through this. The scent of freedom it was inebriating. Many young Libyans were fueled by the recent toppling of Egypt's Mubarak and Tunisia's Ben Ali. That's when Gaddafi changed his tune and reverted back to being ruthless. This quote is from The Guardian. Gaddafi tells the media, All my people love me. They would die to protect me. Libyan leader laughs off international pressure to step down while speaking to news organizations. Within days, opposition supporters were controlling Benghazi and the government was seeing massive rates of defection. The rebels tried organizing even further, but they were being hit pretty hard by the colonel's forces. As you can imagine, Gaddafi had an army much bigger than those 30 women from his Amazon guard. Libyan oil had also helped pay for a lot of modern weaponry. And this it was pretty helpful in repressing protesters. But as so many people lost their lives, the image of Gaddafi outside of Libya, it simply couldn't get worse. Once again, he went from being our bad guy to the man everyone loved to hate. And this is why a coalition led by NATO forces invaded Libya on the 21st of March 2011 in support of the rebels. But it was months before NATO could turn the tables. As the fighting intensified, NATO carried out a bombing campaign in support of anti-Gaddafi forces. The bombing forced Gaddafi to flee from Tripoli to his hometown of Sirte, where opposition fighters would eventually capture him. On October 20th, 2011, a video released by the fighters shows Gaddafi begging for his life. In another clip, the former strongman is seen dead with an apparent gunshot wound to the head. Muammar Gaddafi was caught and shot dead by the militias of the Libyan National Transitional Council with the active support of French intelligence. Many of you might be tempted to say sick-tempered Tyrannus, right? But hold on just a minute. <laughs> even worse. After the corpse of the former dictator was dragged through the streets and put on display, the rebels turned on each other. The country, it was split, and crime and human trafficking ran rampant. And if there's one rule in politics, it is this. There cannot be a power vacuum. Gaddafi was gone, but who or what was the alternative. Even though some Western countries had been doing good business with Gaddafi, they never fully trusted him. 
They saw the civil war as an opportunity to remove him from power and intervene militarily in order to cut off the Arab revolution that had flared up in Tunisia and Egypt. It also provided powers such as France and Britain a chance to reassert themselves on the world stage. After Gaddafi's death, Libya was torn up and divided without a national government to claim control. And what that meant at the time was that local militias had the power of life and death over the population. The economy was also pretty messed up, as one might expect after a revolution. The GDP collapsed in 2014, and in 2015, the production of crude oil fell to the lowest levels since the 1970s. This quote is from Al Jazeera. Ex-NATO boss. Libya still a model intervention. You see, unlike the Iraq or Afghanistan war, the Libyan one was a different animal. In this case, it was not led by America, but instead by France. And the French military style, it couldn't be more different. Usually, the Americans invade a country, kill the dictator, and then stay there for a few years. We've seen this in Japan and in Germany after World War II, but also later in Iraq and Afghanistan. The military tries to make sure that they can form a post-war government and fight the last groups that supported the former one. The French, they're pretty much the opposite. They strike, they kill the bad guy, and they get out of there. This is what happened in Mali, for example, and this is what happened in Libya. So, effectiveness-wise, the Libyan war was a complete success. In fact, if you look at this chart, you can can see that it was one of the cheapest wars in modern history. It took only a little more than a month to complete. Compared with Iraq or Afghanistan, the Libyan war couldn't be more cost-effective. The chart shows that the war in Iraq cost 718 billion euros, the war in Afghanistan cost 604 billion euros, and in Libya, 1.1 billion euros. So, well, what's the problem? Well, of course, that's the aftermath. After the fall of Gaddafi, three main players emerged in the country. The government of Tripoli, supported by Turkey and Qatar. The government of Tobruk, supported mainly by Egypt and the United Arab Emirates. And last but not least, Daesh forces. War raged once more, and Daesh took advantage of the chaos and expanded rapidly. The elections in 2014 were marred by violence and low turnout. Eventually, a compromise was found and a government of national agreement. It was formed, supported by the UN. A group that monitors violence using media reports estimated that more than 4,600 people have died in the fighting since the beginning of 2014, and the UN estimates that 2.44 million people, about a third of Libya's population, have been affected by the fighting, which has led to shortages of food, water, electricity, and medical supplies, and it's also reduced access to healthcare and public services. This quote is from Africa Renewal. Forgotten War. A crisis deepens in Libya, but where are the cameras? As you might have noticed, Libya isn't doing much better today. The government installed in 2016 only has a partial hold on the country. Given this instability, there are no facilities and desert patrols to tackle trafficking networks. There are also no funds for Libya's Coast Guard to monitor sea crossings. And this is why, in this dangerous power vacuum, oil companies are even starting to make deals with local tribes in order to keep their businesses going. From El Confidencial. The Repsol camp in Libya resumes activity after agreement with the assailants. Despite all the turmoil, Repsol is still going strong in Libya and is currently preparing to increase production even more. Money, it seems, really does talk. Now the question is, if even big oil companies are making deals with rebels, does a unified Libyan government really have a chance? I mean, will we ever see a democratic and stable government in this country? 
So I really hope you enjoyed that episode of the podcast. This was originally a video that aired on our YouTube channel. If you'd like to get stuff right up to date as it comes out, please do search Visual Politic. That's politic with a K, one word, in YouTube, and you will catch all of our videos. Also, if you like this, please do consider leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We really do appreciate it. And as always, I'll see you next time.